Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Okay, here we go now with another big one that really jumped out at me on the weekend. And that is a universal basic income. Should every Canadian receive a guaranteed minimum income from the government. This is an idea that's been kicking around for a while. It got a big boost on the weekend when the federal liberals endorsed this idea at their policy convention. So basically, like taking a government income program like the CERB and making it permanent, a guaranteed income for every Canadian. Would this be an expensive program? Oh, yeah, you, you think? Yeah, it'd be expensive. I'll tell you the, the price tag here in just a minute. But we've assembled a great panel on this one for you. Jim Stanford is here. He's an economist with the Center for Future Work in Vancouver. I'm pleased to welcome him back to the show. Hi, Jim. I know he's there. Hey, Jim. Let's And also Chris Sims on the line. She's the BC Director, Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Hi, Chris. Good morning. Th- thank you to both of you. Jim, are you there? I am, Mike. Good oh, morning. Good. Oh, thank goodness. Okay. Well, Jim, let me go to you first. What do you think of this idea, universal basic income? You like it? I like it as a concept, as a goal, something to work towards. Uh, it's going to be very challenging to implement in sort of one big foul swoop. You know, it's not going to be a magic bullet. But the goal of saying that in a country as rich as Canada, no one should have to live in poverty is entirely legitimate, and it's doable to get there. The resolution from the Liberal Convention was very vague. They didn't outline, you know, a, a plan, uh, the details, the cost, etc. Uh, it was more of a statement of aspiration, I would say, and it's an aspiration I agree with. How much would it cost? Well, there's various estimates. Uh, The Parliamentary Budget Office uh, just did one uh, for the federal uh, system uh, based on a pilot that had been trialed in Ontario uh, a couple of years ago, uh, and they estimated about $85 billion a year for a Canada-wide oh. program. Yeah, oh So that's going to be a big cookie to swallow. So that's why <laughs> what's more likely is rather than the one big bang, big bang kind of approach, uh, we're going to see trying to get at it in different ways with groups. For example, disabilities, people with disabilities, yeah. or very young adults who can't get a foot in the labor market, or other targeted groups rather than doing it across the board for everyone. Right, yeah, that cost estimate that you mentioned there, $85 billion, that would be in year one, and then it would rise pretty rapidly to $93 billion a year. This is like the annual cost of the potential cost of this program, and then going up, up, and away from there. Okay, let's check in with Chris Sims. Now, Chris, what do you think of this idea? Oh, we think it's an extremely unaffordable, unaffordable idea. Uh, as yeah. uh, Jim had pointed out, uh, it was very vague, <laughs> as is per typical when it comes to policy conventions, as far as its implementation goes. Uh, but if we take them at face value and actually look at it as universal basic income right. and not do targeted increases for folks who have disabilities and who are unable to work, then it's completely unaffordable. And you're absolutely right. Uh, after the first couple years, this thing, this is the parliamentary 
budget officer's numbers here, too. This thing would be $93 billion per year. Um, and keep in mind that this government has got a terrible track record of blowing billions of dollars on dumb things, like screwing up their own software on how they're actually supposed to meet payroll, you know, building an ice rink out in front of Parliament Hill for some ridiculous reason. So we have very little trust in this government being able to affordably implement something. Well, how can you how can you screw up just giving away free money? <laughs> because somebody well, that's pretty money that's pretty easy to do. Sure is, uh, but unfortunately, uh, the repo man and the bill collector will come knocking one day, and we can't just continuously print money. This is akin but, to getting a bunch of store credit cards and using them to live on, and never opening it, never even paying your minimum balance. It's what completely you, irresponsible. But what if you do like Jim Stanford just said and say, "Okay, there, yeah, the official name of this thing is universal mm-hmm. basic income," which suggests that everybody would receive it. But what if you you start smaller? And you target it to the people most in need with low income, people with disability, poor seniors. Do well, it that I would way. Argue, I would argue then that that's different. That isn't yeah. a universal basic income. We're talking about two different things there. And we already have uh, folks who are on the very low income scale who don't pay income tax. They come off the books, of course. And so there's also folks who are seniors and have disabilities uh, who are paid a certain amount. And we could look at increasing that if folks need, actually need it. But as far as a universal basic income, free money for absolutely everybody, regardless of ability to work or desire to work or age or income, uh, that's completely yeah. unaffordable. I'll put it this way. There has to be people pulling the carriage, okay? And if you just offer money for people to do nothing, you'll have too many people sitting in the carriage and not enough folks pulling. Okay, Jim, what do you say to that? Would the, If you brought in a program like this, would it effectively be a disincentive for some people to say, well, I'm just not going to get a job? Well, I, I think that's a kind of knee-jerk argument that we've heard a lot over the years for any type of welfare or unemployment insurance. You need to have the incentive to work. You need to have people hungry and desperate for work. Um, and the actual evidence is the opposite. Uh, there are actually millions of people who would like to work but can't effectively get into the labor market precisely because they're too poor to start with uh, to even do things like get basic training or uh, have uh, a good uh, a good outfit to put on for a job interview or Internet connections to apply for work. And so the experiments with basic income that have been tried in different places in both uh, uh, in in industrial countries and uh, around the world uh, indicate that when you give people a basic level of support, they're actually more likely to be in the labor market and uh, working. uh, A pilot that they tried in uh, Ontario showed that when the basic income was paid out, it didn't affect uh, the labor supply decisions uh, of uh, people uh, at all, with one exception. Uh, Young people were more likely to continue on in uh, university education, uh, which is actually a good thing uh, longer run. So the the idea that it will mean that nobody wants to work anymore, I think, has been pretty well disproven. Okay, but don't we already have... Okay, Chris, go ahead. You want to say something? You know, I, I just think that flies in the face of common sense, and we don't have enough studies to prove that statement. You know, folks, if you're getting money for nothing and you don't have to go to work, it's obviously going to be a disincentive for many folks to go to work. And again, we already have employment insurance. We already have systems where if you need um, work boots or suits or something like that for a job interview, there are assistance programs for No, there aren't. No, that's absolutely wrong. That's not comprehensive. You can find a little bit of charity here or there, but as a system, that's not how it works. We heard the same argument, Mike, about the CERB. We had employers who run, say, a little restaurant or a store where they hire people for a couple hours at a time and pay minimum wage. 
And they complained that the CERB would sap the incentive to work and they wouldn't be able to find anyone uh, to work in their jobs anymore. Uh, But in fact, uh, Canada's employment rebounded quite strongly when the CERB was in place. And what that argument highlighted was that many employers are taking advantage of the desperation of people to offer jobs that are uh, too, too badly paid, lousy conditions, or very insecure hours. And if it forces employers to improve the offer to workers, that's the way to get uh, the well, incentive to work restored. Well, I have heard from employers in British Columbia, Jim, who have argued the precise opposite of what you just oh, said, sure. that the CERB, yeah. the CERB actually was a disincentive for people to work. And I've heard from employers who said young people in particular, we couldn't hire them or they would quit because they wanted, they preferred to get the CERB instead and stay home, not work. No, we hear that from employers all the time, pandemic or no pandemic. But the reality is there's more people working in B.C. today than there were before the pandemic hit. B.C. is the first province to actually get back to its level of pre-pandemic employment. So so you say that's proof that the there's no doubt about it. But uh, the evidence is that people are working. Okay, Chris, what do you say to that? Depends on how you slice those numbers. We were hearing the same calls that you were, Mike, uh, from folks who run small businesses. These are not, you know, megalomaniacs who are twirling their millionaire mustaches saying, ha, 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 we're going to pay people, you know, as little as possible. These were places that were running things like car detailing outfits, uh, special golf courses, restaurants, who tried to call their employees back to work. And the answer was, call me in September because I'm on CERB for the summer. And okay. that's really unsustainable for people who are trying to make make a go of it in small businesses. All right, welcome back to the show. As we continue talking about a universal basic income in Canada, Jim Stanford, Center for Future Work, Chris Sims, Canadian Taxpayers Federation, your calls to them. Let's go right to your phone calls. Martin in North Van. Hey, Martin. Hey, how's it going? Good, go ahead. Hey, uh, yeah, I just... I don't have much time, but I just wanted to say uh, a universal basic income. It's been tested in many markets in Germany as well. Um, and their conclusions were that it definitely did not disincentivize people on a broad scale because, quite frankly, the, the money is just not enough. Anyone who wants anything more other than paying rent and eating KD for dinner, uh, it's just not enough. So, um, <clears throat> yeah, you might some lose some people who are, you know, in their young, in their early 20s, they're trying to find themselves sure they might not <clears throat> take a dishwashing job but that's really about it and uh, the cost of it also needs to be relativized um this basic income with a swoop of improvements in terms of bureaucracy it gets rid of a bunch of taxes uh, in um in that one study that i read about it actually it came with a increase of the sales tax to about 50%, and it got rid of all the other taxation systems in the, in the same time. Okay, Martin, Martin, thank, thank, you. To me. thank you for the call. Thanks for making some good points. Jim, would you agree with them? I think Martin's point uh, about the work incentive is absolutely bang on, and there's quite a range of empirical studies that says a, a basic income at that low level, you know, enough yeah. to live on, but you're not in any kind of luxury, uh, does not discourage people from working uh, to get a, a better standard of living, not at all. Chris, what do you think? What the caller also touched on there was something that Milton Friedman, the economist, had proposed back in the 1960s, which is what really gave birth to a lot of these uh, universal basic income ideas, and that is a negative income tax. And that would basically mean that once you make up a certain threshold, that's when you start paying income tax. But if you pay less than that, you get money back. It's clear and simple, and this is very key. It would replace all other forms of social assistance and reduce the bureaucracy by about one-third. So if we're talking about 
that, then that's something that we could entertain. Okay, let's go to Ken on the line in Langley. Hey, Ken. Hey, Mike. Okay, first of all, we have this massive, insane debt, out-of-this-world debt from the pandemic. Uh, how are we going to add that on to this right now? It would be a great yeah. idea to have that, but who's going to pay for this because of this debt we already have? The middle class, businesses, uh, the, 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 the burden on the backs of so many people because of this is, is, is insane. I think this is just one big lie because he wants to pull an election like the lie about the vaccines, the lie about the quarantine in uh, okay. that isn't happening. It's a oh, big lie. They're filthy okay. liars. Okay. Okay. okay, thank you. Uh, Jim, what about the debt? I mean, we we'll take a look at the deficit this year as well. Way over 300 billion bucks. The long-term deficit debt of the country is what a trillion dollars for the first time. I mean, how is this sustainable? Well, I, I mean, we could have a whole separate show, uh, Mike, of course, on the debt and deficit, what it means and what it doesn't. The reality is Canadians are richer today in part because of what the government did during the pandemic. Uh, household savings went up uh, and uh, household balance sheets are stronger, much stronger than they would have been without, the, without that uh, federal support. So uh, certainly we have to have a way to pay for it. There's no doubt about that uh, in the long run. And that is going to mean that uh, uh, every bit of a, a step we take towards uh, UBI has also got to have some revenue measures uh, uh, attached to it. So uh, what do you do? Ta degree. Tax the rich? Well, uh, I don't know. Uh, we've talked to, uh, before about a wealth tax. We've talked about yeah. other uh, fair approaches to, to tax, but there's no doubt that in a UBI type of system, uh, some of the money that you get to pay for it comes out from those who are making much, much more than the UBI yeah. in that kind of negative income tax idea that, uh, that Chris just talked about. Chris, wealth tax. That's how you pay for it. I wonder what we do after the last the week. Because uh, last time we did this estimate, a wealth tax on Canada's wealthiest here in the country would get us through about a week's worth of Justin Trudeau-branded spending. What are we going to do after that? Well, how much would it raise? <laughs> I think it would sustain us. We did the math, and it would sustain us for about, about one week, and then the other 51 weeks per year... Who knows? So this is, we have a spending problem, uh, not an income problem. People already pay enough in taxes. And so, again, we need details here on how much this is going to cost. Yeah. And we can't afford a $100 billion program at minimum. Let's go to Susan in North Van. Hi, Susan. Hi. I Hi. personally think it's not such a bad idea, um, especially for people on social assistance um, who are disabled across the country. We have a hodgepodge of of provinces paying different rates. Um, this would make it fair across the board. Um, it's something to think about. Also, it could, in some instances, um, take the place of, um, um, of giving extra pensions to, to, to people, uh, low income, you know, like the, the guaranteed income supplement, okay. that okay. kind of thing. Okay, thank you, very, thank you very much for the call. Jim, we just have a minute left here. I mean, there's a lot of provincial overlap here with uh, income assistance programs, oh, yeah. disability assistance. I mean, how do you deal with that? You know, we had that, that panel in BC that looked at basic income in detail, and they exactly showed how complicated the current system is and how many people fall through the cracks. So Susan's idea of targeting people who really need it, like people with disabilities, uh, uh, families with children, uh, seniors in poverty, that's a great way to start working towards the goal without that $85 billion price tank. 
All right, welcome back to the show. And here we go now with this story that we've been following closely on the show, and that's the Vancouver Police Department's Police in Schools program. It's called the School Liaison Program. It's been operating in Vancouver schools for decades. Officers visiting schools in the city, reaching out to students. Now, this program started up way back in the 1970s, but will it be allowed to operate much longer there is a campaign underway to cancel this program it's called no cops in schools the vancouver school board set to make a decision on this possibly a little later this month now we've covered this story closely on the show we've had both sides of it last week i spoke to owen abose he is a vancouver high school student he's the founder of youth empowerment canada and he says that the students he represents want police out of Vancouver schools. All right, let's discuss now with my guest, Fiona Wilson. She's a superintendent with the Vancouver Police Department, and I'm very pleased to welcome her to the show. Superintendent, thank you for coming on. Good morning, Mike. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks a lot for doing this. Let's start a little bit about this program. What are the main things that you think the listeners need to know about how the, what this program does and how it operates? Sure. So, um, as you mentioned, the program's been in place since 1972. Um, we currently have 15 SLOs that are assigned to various schools in Vancouver, both public and private. Um, and to be honest, Mike, these jobs attract some of our very best officers. They're typically senior members because the selection process is very competitive, uh, primarily because it's known to be one of the most rewarding jobs our members can do. And uh, of the 15 people, that do this work. They are a diverse group. Almost half of them are women. Almost half of them identify as people of color, and they collectively speak multiple languages. Many of them are actually former VSB students themselves, and some of them actually joined the VPD as a result of their relationship with their SLO. So these jobs are very close to their hearts. Um, and the policing experience that they bring to the table is impressive. For example, one's a former homicide detective. Another worked in our recruiting unit for years. Uh, one came from our emergency response team. They each run at least one extracurricular activity at their schools, such as like the Windermere Running Club or Churchill Strong, which is a, a weight training program. But additionally, they run countless annual events, such as soccer tournaments and basketball tournaments. They run programs like Student Challenge, Here for Peers, the Cadet Program. But I think what's important for people to understand is that there's also a very practical side of having SLOs in schools because they really do contribute to school safety. I have the opportunity every week to read about interactions between our SLOs and students, and I routinely read about youth disclosing incidents, for example, of sexual assault or bullying and harassment in the school or even, uh, in some cases, abuse in their homes. And the public wow. doesn't see this. Another thing the public doesn't see, and I certainly don't want to be accused of fear-mongering here, but... The reality is I've seen multiple examples of situations that could have resulted in tragic outcomes if it weren't for SLO intervention. And I'm talking here about active deadly threat scenarios or uh, students who are suicidal. And I certainly have right. some examples of that. Um, so it's not just the amazing relationships uh, that develop between youth and, and police and the breaking down of barriers between youth and police, but it's also about uh, the safety of our kids in schools along with staff and teachers. Right. Okay. An SLO, just for the listeners know, stands for School Liaison Officer. Now, when these officers are, are in school, uh, are they in full uniform? Do they got their, their gun on their holster on their hip? 
Yeah, so it depends on what they're doing. If they're, for example, um, if um, Constable Zalavaga is running the uh, Windermere Running Club, she is just in shorts and a T-shirt, and she's not armed, she's not in uniform. It really does depend on what they're doing. Um, We have two members who are assigned to the alternate program, and they are always in plain clothes, and they drive an unmarked police car, for example. Um, We have other members who um, will go to the school in uniform, and if they're in uniform, they will be armed. But often, um, particularly during summer months or during uh, programs like some of the ones I've described, they'll just be in plain clothes. Okay, let me play a couple of clips here for you, Superintendent, of the guest we had on last last week's show, Owen Ebose, who is a high school student in Vancouver and a student activist and campaigning to have this program shut down. Now, here he is talking about the students that he represents, he says that a lot of students do not feel safe with these police officers around in school. Let's have a listen here. You have these officers in the schools. They, they're walking through the halls. They have their badge, their gun on for, for no reason at all. And students can't help but feel uncomfortable, unsafe. Questions run through their mind. Did I do something wrong? Why are these officers here? Okay, what do you, what do you say to that? So, I, you know, at the end of the day, we the last thing... Uh, any of our members want to do, any of our school liaison officers want to do is make kids feel uncomfortable. That really is the opposite of what they're trying to achieve when they're in the schools. Um, And the uncomfortable truth is that, um, you know, there are kids who are going to be uh, traumatized by seeing a, a member in uniform. And I've made it very clear to the VSB that we are more than happy to sit down and discuss how we could make changes to the program to address some of these concerns moving forward. And maybe that means reducing the amount of time our members are in uniform in the schools, for example. We want to be part of those conversations. Um, And we really, despite the fact that the VPD budget funds this entire program, we are really, really invested in keeping our SLOs in schools because we really believe that it is one of the few things that we as police can still do that builds relationships with youth prior to 911 ever needing to be called. So right. it's one of the, the ways that we can address some of the intervention, education, and prevention components um, of policing. And, um, you know, as I say, we're more than willing to sit down right. and discuss how the program could be revamped. You know, VPD is a progressive policing organization. We're always willing to talk about how we can do things better. Okay, speaking to Superintendent Fiona Wilson of the Vancouver Police Department, and we're talking about the VPD's Police and Schools program, which some people want shut down. Let me play another clip here for you from uh, Owen Abose, Superintendent from last week's show. And you mentioned, you described how the officers in this program uh, participate in extracurricular activities and mentoring kids and that kind of thing. He made the argument that he goes, no, that doesn't really happen in his experience. So here's what he had to say. The mentorship program it isn't taking shape as, as to what their, their dream world is looking like, Mike. It, it okay. really isn't. In schools, students are, are undertaking a battle every day. When that officer walks through the halls, everyone's looking at each other. They're thinking, okay, something is wrong here. This isn't my friend. This isn't an ally. This is my enemy here. And, and that's just not wow. what we should have in schools. Okay, I was really kind of shocked when he said that, that he thinks kids are, the police are the enemy when they come into a school. But your thoughts? Well, first of all, it's very sad to hear that, obviously. Yeah. Um, you know, and we, I, I think uh, Owen's voice is a voice that has to be heard. We have to pay attention to that. We have to respond to that. Um, but what I can tell you is that the VSB 
hired an independent consultant to do a um, a study on the the school liaison program in schools, and um, the uh, I really encourage all of your listeners to tr- to actually read this report along with the 75 letters of support from stu- primarily from students to right. keep SLOs in school because some of the individual accounts are very very compelling and really quite uh, moving. Um, it's frustrating because I keep hearing people say that clearly students want SLOs to be removed from schools. And honestly, that's not what the consultants report found. In fact, yeah. 74% of respondents said they wanted to keep SLO program as it is or make some changes. And of these, 65% of respondents identified as being part of the BIPOC community. So this is not, in my opinion, a resounding response to remove SLOs from schools. In fact, quite the opposite. As I say, we're happy to have conversations about the program and its future, but I yeah. think it is important to listen to all voices. And when you talk about some of the programs, I, you know, I look at a list of some of the programs that our SLOs run, and there's literally thousands and thousands of students that have participated in these programs over the years. And um, I really encourage everybody to look at that, uh, that Argyle consultant report from the VSB, because some of those letters that are attached to it are incredibly okay. heartfelt. Okay, last question for you, and then we're going to take some calls from our, our listeners here. But uh, I wonder if you think that at this particular time, if this would be a particularly bad time to shut down this program. I mean, we've got a gang war going on in Metro Vancouver. We hear reports about gangsters sometimes trying to uh, get high school kids involved in the gang life. Uh, we hear about overdose. We got record overdose deaths from illicit drugs. We have got kids who are struggling with mental illness during this pandemic. I don't know. I mean, it just seems like the worst possible time to shut down a program like this. But your thoughts? Mike, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, And actually, one of the things I think we really need to all turn our mind to is what will happen if these SLOs are removed from schools. And I've already spoken a little bit about some of those really, um, uh, you know, uh, safety-centric concerns that we would have around you know, possible school shootings, like an SLO recently interrupted a possible school shooting because the affected student had a relationship with the SLO. In another incident... Wow, what, uh, was, that, student, what was that one about? How did that um, happen? It was, it was uh, a, a student who was actually suicidal, and um, wow. thankfully they had a relationship with their SLO, and they were, the SLO was able to defuse that situation. But I'll give you another example. And well, these did stu- did that, that, student have a, that student have a gun on him? Um, we believe the student had access to firearms, yes. Wow, okay. But in another incident, a student yeah. announced in a chat group uh, their intention of bringing a knife to school and, quote, giving it to uh, people that deserved it. We did search warrants that later revealed a list of names that that student was planning to target. The SLO wow. was informed of these developing circumstances by students that they had built relationships with. And this is what the public doesn't see. But, you know, another thing to consider is people keep talking about replacing SLOs with um, you know, counselors or other resources in the schools. But the reality is if, if the SLOs are removed from schools, they come back to the VPD and they will be redeployed within our department because we certainly have many, many areas where uh, we could use them. Because don't forget, these are a group of super experienced, highly sought after officers sure. who are facing pressures in many areas of the VPD. But um, so it's not like removing SLOs from school is going to leave a budget surplus in those schools. But the other thing that'll happen is that when the schools do need police, they have to call 911 or non-emerge, and their call will be prioritized along with every other incident in the city. So depending on the severity of the matter, people could wait hours or even days for police attendance. Then you'll get two officers showing up. 
um, who don't have any connection with the school, no relationship with the students, the staff, the teachers. Um, many of our SLOs are familiar with students' families even. You won't have that. They won't know the dynamics okay. between students. They won't be familiar with students, um, as many of them are now. And uh, I just don't think that's in the best interest of schools. Okay. It's been great to get your, your side of it and a very detailed uh, information about the program. And I really appreciate your time today. Thank you very much for coming on. It's my pleasure. All right, welcome back as we continue talking about Vancouver Police and Schools program. You heard my conversation there with Superintendent Fiona Wilson from the VPD. Let's go to your calls. Dave and Kitts. Hey, Dave. Hey, Mike. How you doing? I'm good. What do you think? Uh, first of all, I'm an inner city kid. I went to Britannia, and we had li- li- liaison officers in our school. I knew right from wrong. We also had a guy named Mr. Bill Vance great phys ed teacher jody's father was a great mentor in growing up and i'm telling you uh if they save one two three kids it's well worth it because there are so many distractions out there there are so many influential people it's money it's the cars you know it's the lifestyle and um they're going to end up on the wrong side of the law then of course they're going to have bad reactions to the police being in the school because they're going to think they're authoritarian. When they're not there, they're there to listen, to guide, yeah. and to help. They're not there to make you go to school, you know, to be that superintendent, you know, you know, liaison officer, hey, get to school, you're skipping out. No, 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 no. They're there to listen. That's it. Yeah, thank you, Dave, for a good call, man. I appreciate that, and I think a lot of people agree with you. Let's go to Lauren and Nanaimo. Hey, Lauren. Hi, Mike. Hey, listen, I, uh, I'm i a real supporter of, of the police and police in schools. But my point is, why do they have to wear a gun in school? Well, yeah. Like, it seems to me that we've got this uniform, and she says, well, you wear a uniform, you got to put a gun on. And I disagree with that. You see a cop walking down the school, and he's wearing a gun. I, I, everyone looks at that. I mean, we're in this society where we're trying to reduce gun violence, and here we are showing kids that... You know, the good guys wear guns and shoot people. We're not the states, for heaven's sakes. Lock your lock your, your pistol in your trunk in the safe. Go in the school with no gun. Show them that you can do that. I, I don't think you're going to de-escalate a suicide with a teenager with a gun anyway. Like, everything they're doing is great, for heaven's sakes. Drop the gun, drop the ego, and the gun is really part of that. I think it would make a huge change. Okay, Lauren, thank you very much for that. Now, it's a really interesting point, and maybe that's where this whole debate leads to here. And it was interesting to hear the VPD officer there uh, say they're willing to talk about that. Maybe if the, if the program has to be changed, you have officers out of uniform, unarmed in the school. Maybe that's the way, that's where it ends up. Let's go to Mike and Vernon. Hey, Mike. Hey, morning, Mike. Uh, just a quick thing here. The the officer that you, uh, or the um, superintendent that you interviewed, said that on many cases they don't wear guns in the schools. So That's let's right. not blow yes. that out of proportion, right? Right. Well, so, no, they, sometimes um, they do and sometimes they don't. Sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. Yeah. If they've been on patrol or whatever and they happen to drop by the school, that's one thing. But she said in most cases they don't. Yeah. Um, so the other thing is, and also one other point is, the first thing I see when I see an officer is I don't look at his gun. I mean, I don't know where that comes from. So uh, the other thing is um, that... Uh, this program started when I was in school, and um, at first, you know, we were skeptical of it. You know, we're all mm. the cops are in the school. But as time grew on, we realized they were there to be part of it. They coached our hockey teams through minor hockey and everything else, and it grew a real healthy relationship with the RCMP that I still, or the police that I still have to this day. But uh, the other thing is that the young fellow that you interviewed, yeah. and, and you ran his interview uh, today, 
a little bit of it. One of the things that I find a little bit troubling is that he really seems to come off as very angry and this, you know, the, the, the comment that the police are the enemy. Um, yeah, I, I just yeah. don't understand where that comes from. I mean, we know we've had some bad incidents and stuff like that, but in general, the police are not the enemy. Okay. And I can tell you, the first time something bad happens to him, who do you think he's going to call? Okay, Mike, thank you very much for the call. Thanks for all your calls on that one. We couldn't get to everybody. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about safety for cyclists now. BC cyclists are injured or worse every single day in our province in collisions between motor vehicles and bikes. Now the BC Cycling Coalition is calling for a minimum distance passing law, 1.5 meters. That should be the minimum distance between a motor vehicle when it passes a bike. Let's discuss this idea now with my guest, Peter Ladner. He is the vice chair of the BC Cycling Coalition, and I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show. Peter, thanks a lot for coming on. It's a pleasure to be talking to you. Okay, Peter, can you, let's talk a little bit about uh, how many cyclists are injured, uh, injured or worse in BC right now. How big of a problem is this at the moment? Um, about every day, there are four people injured on a bicycle in BC, and eight wow. people are killed. So it's a lot. Eight people and killed a year, right? Yeah, not a day. Yeah, a year. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, that's that's a lot. I think when I heard that four a day, that was higher than I thought. Now, a lot of this, these are, we're talking about collisions between bikes and motor vehicles, correct? Uh, yes. Yeah. 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 Okay. okay. Tell me about the minimum passing law that you'd like to see. How would this work? Well, just to put it in some context, Mike, this is part of a whole bunch of reforms to the Motor Vehicle Act that have been proposed by not just the BC Cycling Coalition, but a whole bunch of cycling organizations, uh, Fraser, you know, the health officials, trial lawyers, and people generally concerned about how we're going to get to Vision Zero, which is we're not we stop slaughtering and injuring people on our streets. So the the minimum passing distance is one that we're showcasing just because. We, well, we were actually fundraising around it so we can get a proper campaign going and actually push this over the finish line, as it were. And uh, so there, it, the, the idea is that you would legislate or just have a defined distance that everybody would know is what's required when you're passing, if you're in a, vehicle, a car and you're passing a cyclist. Right, and we 1.5 meters, Right. right? Right. And so if you pass, let's say someone's driving a car or a truck and they pass a bike less than 1.5 meters, then what would be the penalty for that? Well, there's no penalty now. <laughs> well, and, and I suppose, I, I'm not sure what the, we're proposing a whole series of meaningful fines, just as they, the BC government uh, thankfully increased the fines for dooring. If you open your door yeah. without looking and you clip it, you injure a cyclist. And that jumped up to it's over 300 bucks now or something. But I think the point is not so much that there's a, a fine because the number of times it would be enforced would probably not be that great, but more that people know that the rule is there. It's sort of like uh, yeah. there's a speed limit at 50K in residential streets and you don't get a lot of speeding tickets there, but people know and, that, and they, they respond differently. By okay. the way, yeah. The other big change that we'd like to see on the Motor Vehicle Act is to change it to the Road Safety Act and then bring allow municipalities to bring the speed limits down in residential areas from 50 to 30 kilometers an hour. 
and, and this is a widely endorsed move and okay. speaks to all the vulnerable road users. Okay. The minimum passing law of 1.5 meters that, that you propose, I mean, there's there's a few sort of obvious questions there around that, and one of which that uh, I think immediately leaps to mind is how would it be enforced? Like, you know, obviously someone's not going to be out there and measuring the distance that a, a vehicle, as it goes around a, a bike, so how how would that be enforced? Like, what would be the evidence required to, to like to prove that you went less than one point five meters around a bike? Uh, it would be more um, after the fact, I expect. And you know, if a bike gets clipped by a car, there's there's a kind of evidence there. Oh, yeah. And uh, I have friends who travel around with with permanent cameras going on their helmets to uh, because they get, they've run into so many problems. They just want to keep a record of everything. So there may be records, there may be people with dash cams or whatever. Um, but as I said, the main thing is that it sets a framework and a target and it's something for people to understand. And, and if they enforce, if, if they followed it, it would increase safety for cyclists. Okay. Another thing I was wondering about is whether a law like that would basically duplicate other laws that are already on the books right now. So one of the things I did last night, Peter, was I took a quick look at the, the Motor Vehicle Act. And there's a number of sections in there that potentially covers this situation. So Section 144 of the Motor Vehicle Act, for example, requires that drivers and cyclists drive with reasonable consideration for other road users. Would that not cover precisely what you're talking about? Like if you go too close to a, a bike when you're passing, that's obviously not driving with reasonable care for someone else on the road. So isn't it already covered? Mike, you and I know that definition of reasonable is pretty different from one person to the other. It's so vague as to be meaningless. So why not put a number on it? Okay, there's another section of the Act that says that passing must be done in safety. In safety. Yeah, again, nice sentiment, but how meaningful is that? Yeah. So you would like to... It's very hard... Yeah, you want it. You want it defined, strictly defined in the law. Let me ask you this though: What if, okay, let's say a, a cyclist is in the middle of the lane, like in the middle of the road, and I'm I'm coming up to a cyclist, and they're not they're not hugging the curb, they're far out in the lane of traffic that I'm in. Or what if you've got two two cyclists going two abreast, like side by side instead of in a straight line? What am I supposed to do then if if I'm going to give one and a half meters? of space how how would that be resolved like you'd have to veer into the oncoming lane of traffic or something to go around a bike well if you if there was a let's just say there's a slow car in front of you what would you do you'd wait or you'd pass when it's safe and i would say the same thing about that just um use your common sense there's no um, rule of the universe that says that cars have to keep going at the at a given speed at all times they can slow down it takes it takes into into consideration and when they do pass they have to acknowledge that they need to give some safe distance to the cyclist right but this but the cyclist also has to follow the rules too though right like i know that we're when we take some phone calls in this i know people are going to phone up and say well cyclists are not following the laws themselves that's absolutely true. There are cyclists who don't follow the laws, but but and and in fact, the BC Cycling Coalition has a has a manual called Bike Sense that we put out to help educate the cyclists about the law and make sure that they do follow the laws and and cycle responsibly. But I think a lot of those those objections are 
really uh, people who just want to get their digs in on cyclists. And, and in fact, if a cyclist breaks the law, the consequences are not usually that awful for anybody compared to when a, when a car driver goes through a red light, say, there's a death situation waiting. Whereas if a cyclist goes through a stop sign, they're putting themselves at risk, and it's a stupid, foolish thing to do, but uh, the consequences are, are not nearly the same as when car drivers break the right. law. Speaking of Peter Ladner, he's the vice chair of the BC Cycling Coalition. 1.5 meters, should that be the minimum passing distance for a motor vehicle going around a bicycle? Peter, uh, are there any other jurisdictions in Canada or elsewhere that have a law similar to this? Uh, Lots of them. Uh, Most American states, Ontario, Quebec, and I think there's one other province, and They've all implemented this and, and live with it and work with it, and it helps their situation. Remember, too, that we're trying to get to vision zero. We're trying to get to zero road fatalities, and uh, we're going to need a lot more than just this to get there. Right. And you also mentioned that you know, going for a, a law like this, would rec- you'd need the provincial government to amend the Motor Vehicle Act, correct? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay, where, so where is it at now? Have you made a formal representation to government to do that? Well, back in April 2018, a whole uh, bunch of people came together and, and created this motor vehicle law reform group. And as I said, it included health authorities, the city of uh, Victoria, the city of New Westminster, biking advocates, um, all kinds of people, and has presented that to the provincial government. It's, and it has not been acted on all these years. And we're hoping that this will change soon. Okay. Okay. We're following it closely. Peter Ladner, thanks for coming on the show today. I appreciate it. Okay, Mike, thanks for listening. Thank you. Peter Ladner there, vice chair of the BC Cycling Coalition. 1.5 meters, that's the minimum passing distance they want to see enshrined in law for motorists going around a bicycle. Let's get a quick reaction to that now from Kyla Lee. She is a a specialist in driving law. She's a lawyer with uh, Acumen Law, and I'm very pleased to welcome her back. Hi, Kyla. Hi, thank you for having me. Thanks a lot for being here. So I know you heard that interview. What do you think? Um, I think that it would be impossible to create this law in a way that was enforceable and enforceable in a fair way. And I, you know, I agree with what you were saying that we already have provisions in the Motor Vehicle Act that cover this type of conduct and function to protect cyclists from drivers so long as drivers are following those rules. Okay, but he said that there are lots of other states and provinces who have a similar law and it seems to be working there. I mean, I would really question whether it's the law that's working there or whether it's other aspects of their motor vehicle legislation or legislation regarding cyclists or the structure of cities. Okay, and he also made the point that, okay, even if it's a difficult one to enforce, like, you know, how who's going to measure the distance when someone passes someone? He says, look, even if you have a law like this on the books, at the very least, it's going to send the message to the public and increase road safety and awareness. What do you think of that argument? I think that it's only going to lead to much more stress for drivers, which will lead to greater driving errors. If you're, you know, passing a cyclist and you're worried whether you're 1.3 meters because you don't want to get a ticket and have to pay $109 or however much it's going to be, you're going to make more errors as far as looking at oncoming traffic in the other lane, looking for other hazards on the road, because you're going to be so focused on the risk of getting a ticket for not having sufficient distance from the cyclist. All right, welcome back to the show. We're getting closer to the CKNW Vault Contest, by the way. Now, that's coming up in the 11 o'clock hour, your chance to spin the wheel in the Vault Contest. Okay, it's coming up in the next hour. 
Oh, you win cash money. Make sure you don't go anywhere. Right now, though, we're talking about a safe passing distance uh, for going around a cyclist. Should it be mandatory 1.5 meters? Kyla Lee is my guest. Let's go to your phone calls, and we got lots of them. Cheryl of Maple Ridge. Hi, Cheryl. Hi, how are you today? I'm good. Go ahead. I'm good, thanks. So uh, just to start off, one of the points I really strongly agreed with was that him saying if a car runs a red light or a stop line, that um, that can be far more dangerous than a cyclist doing it. It can kill someone. But in actual fact, if a cyclist does that, that can just as easily cause a car accident to happen uh, or someone to get hurt. And so if they want to put these new laws on us for the cyclists, we really need the cyclists to follow the rules of the road as they are. And if they don't, they need to have fines as well. Well, yeah, thank yeah, thank you, Cheryl, for that. And Kyla, I did raise that point with him, and we hear this all the time, saying, okay, we want tougher laws to protect cyclists, but what about cyclists who don't follow the law? Your thoughts? Well, I mean, I think the the response that it's more dangerous for the cyclist if they don't follow the law is a, is a little bit glib. I mean, at the end of the day, no driver wants on their conscience that they unintentionally, through a cyclist's negligence, killed somebody. Nobody wants to have to live with that. And saying that drivers should just have to live with that because cyclists are only risking their own lives neglects the emotional distress that other people are going to suffer in witnessing and being involved in those collisions. Yeah, but isn't that basically true, what he said, though? I mean, if you have a collision between a car and a cyclist, I mean, who's more likely to be injured, the driver or the cyclist? Usually the right? cyclist, but what about well, yeah. a collision between a cyclist and a pedestrian? Well, yeah, that's true. Okay, Sandy in Victoria. Hi, Sandy. Oh, hi, Mike. Hi. Yeah, um, as you probably know, in Victoria, generally speaking, people are, are very um, upset with bikers in general because this lady said they don't obey the rules they're always rolling through stop signs and and making left-hand turns right in front of you and with as far as the bike we have bike lanes here over the top in victoria and every time they make them they make the road more narrow yeah and the main problem i have is i'm in my car all the time all over the place and in the bike lane it is not unusual to have two abreast in a bike lane or a single biker riding their bike on the white line that's right next to the, the driving um, lanes for the cars. And I believe that we should be going back to licensing them because the amount of millions of dollars we're spending in Victoria, they're not contributing yeah. anything to it. Okay, and they're not Sam- shopping and loading up their um, bike with the things they buy in town. Okay, Sandy, th- thank you thank you for the call. I did raise that point with Peter Ladner about what if you've got two cyclists riding two abreast there instead of in a straight line. Kind of makes it a little tougher to pass. Uh, Tim in Vancouver. Hey, Tim. Hey, how's it going, Mike? Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, I, I think uh, Peter sounds ridiculous. The reason I say this is a couple of years ago, he was advocating for cyclists not coming to a full stop at a stop sign. He thought that cyclists can do a rolling stop. And amongst that as well, they also advocated to the Vancouver PD not to enforce any uh, things that would inhibit cycling in the city, such as wearing a helmet. So if he cares so much about cycle safety, would he not be advocating the opposite on those two things? It's all about getting rid of the car. Peter's a joke, and it's, it's the same thing from him every time. Now he wants to ruin Final Beach by putting a bike lane in there. Hey, we just built you one a block away. If you want to enjoy the park, walk your bike like everybody else. Peter, okay. he didn't get mayor for a reason. <laughs> okay, yeah, he did run for mayor one time. Thank you, Tim, for failed. that. Yeah, thank you, Tim. Um, what about that, Kyla, on the stop sign rule? Is a, a stop sign apply to cyclists equally to cars? 
a stop sign does apply to cyclists equally to cars, and there's yeah. lots of good safety reasons for that, including that the cars are expecting cyclists to come to a stop so that they know whose turn it is to go through okay. four-way stops. It's time to ask a major question here. Does Canada need stricter orders around travel? Are these mandatory hotel quarantines actually working our show contributor john jang joins us now to kickstart that discussion john good morning mike do we need tougher penalties on individuals who choose to ignore the mandatory hotel policy when flying into canada consider this according to a new report from the vancouver sun more than 100 passengers arriving at yvr have flat out refused to comply with the mandatory three-day hotel quarantine at a government authorized location The Public Health Agency of Canada outlined in an email to me this morning that 106 of these tickets had been issued since February 22nd. So if this mandatory policy is not really mandatory, what happens next? Sarah Lehman, the founder of the Sarah Lehman Law Group, joins us now. And Sarah, what is your reaction when you hear that over 100 individuals have basically challenged this policy in recent months? I have to say that I am a little bit shocked to hear that there are so many people refusing to quarantine. Uh, And I'm not sure what is going into their decision to do so, but it is quite surprising to me, given that uh, there are pretty high penalties for refusing to comply that are being issued. Yeah, I mean, from my understanding, it's $3,000 a day in fines. From our understanding of things, a three-night stay in some of those government-mandated hotels costs around $2,000, maybe $2,500. So these fines are pretty significant. They are. They're quite steep. And I will say that I have had a number of people contact our office with these fines as well, looking for advice about whether they should dispute them or how to go about doing that. And of course, it's always a person's right to dispute any infraction that they receive. But it is troubling to hear that there are so many of these being issued. I I feel like a lot of people now, the public at large, would be concerned with the high number of individuals that are coming through, knowing that there's a quarantine rule in place, and then not choosing to follow through with those quarantine protocols. At the same time, would people wonder, is this system just not working? Like, does it have to be stiffer? Does enforcement have to be a little stronger than what it currently is? Well, I guess that's the big question here, because it seems that travelers are weighing their options as to whether they're going to quarantine or just take the ticket and deal with it later. And a lot of people are choosing the latter. So we have to ask, you know, are there different enforcement measures that can be put in place? Could there be larger penalties that might act as a better deterrent for those travelers so they would actually be willing to go into quarantine? And how could these things actually be put into action at our airports so that people are willing to comply with the quarantine. So these are big questions for people uh, to think about, and particularly for our lawmakers to think about. We've had plenty of debates and discussions on whether or not it's time for the province to basically close the borders and isolate itself, not just from the rest of Canada, but essentially from the rest of the world, uh, from all non-essential travel. Instead of putting this possibility into travelers' hands, just forcing the issue entirely and closing down the airports, again, to non-essential travel. Is it time to maybe take a look into something as unprecedented as this? Well, it is a completely unprecedented situation, and certainly it's above my pay grade to make those big decisions. But I do think that they have to turn their mind to that, because if we are having a threat of you know, different variants being introduced into our communities, uh, and we need to curb the spread of COVID-19 and all of the other variants, then I think it's important for those measures that are put in place to be effective measures, things that will actually work, 
things that people are compelled to comply with. Uh, but there are big questions about the legality of those types of enforcements. There's big questions about whether it's breaching constitutional rights and whether or not those rights are suspended because of the pandemic that we're dealing with. So these are all things that need to be sorted out. But I think that time is of the essence as we combat this virus. One thing I know about COVID-19 fines is that a very small percentage of individuals have actually decided to pay them back. And we've known that COVID-19 fines have existed for over a year now. So the fact that these $3,000 a day fines are being issued, on paper, it looks great. But in practice, we know that it might not mean anyone's actually ever going to pay these fines. Do we now need to make sure that these fines can be associated with things like renewing your driver's license or renewing your automobile insurance in order for these individuals to have some sort of penalty hanging above their heads? Yeah, and that's another question that I think people are asking when looking at the fact that so many people haven't actually dealt with their COVID-19 fines. Now, it doesn't really surprise me all that much, though, because when people are issued with other types of bylaw tickets or traffic tickets, there is a large percentage of individuals who decide to dispute those. Um, so it's not really surprising to me that people have decided to either dispute them or else have decided to kind of just ignore it until they're forced to pay. Now, I definitely don't recommend doing the latter of those two. If you get one of these tickets, you should either pay it or dispute it. Uh, definitely don't just sit back and hope the problem resolves itself because that's probably going to make things worse. But that being said, collecting these unpaid fines where a dispute hasn't been registered might prove to be somewhat problematic for the province. So they are going to have to think about how they're going to do that. She is Sarah Lehman, founder of the Sarah Lehman Law Group. Appreciate you giving us some time here today and providing some insight into this very contentious issue. Thanks so much for having me. All right, that is Sarah Lehman there, Vancouver lawyer in conversation with our own John Jang. And John joins me now. John, this is, uh, in some ways, I find it kind of a surprising story that uh, over a hundred people, when they fly into Canada, are just straight up refusing uh, to go into that mandatory hotel quarantine. That's a bit of a higher number than I anticipated to actually look a border official in the eye and say, "No, I'm not going to do it." And then they're subject to these three thousand a day dollar, uh, three thousand dollar a day fines, as you outlined there. Does that, like, they call this a mandatory? They call it a mandatory hotel stay, but. If you can just walk away and not go to the hotel, I don't know, it doesn't sound very mandatory to me. Yeah, it, to me, it just doesn't seem like it's working. If you're going to call yeah. anything mandatory, you need to make sure that it's not optional. And clearly, based on the fact that over 100, 100 individuals since February 22nd have decided to just walk the other way, Mike, and say, nah, yeah. thanks, but no thanks. To me, it's flat out not working. You need to make the penalties stiffer. Yeah, okay. 3000 bucks a day, though, is a pretty stiff fine. But as you discussed there with Sarah Lehman, like a lot of people would just say, well, I'm not paying the fine anyway. Come and if you want it, come and get me. Exactly. Yeah. Now, $3,000 a day. Yeah, of course, that's a significant number. But if you've already made up in your mind, I'm not going to pay a single cent. Well, then it's really not an issue to you. And so far, I know you and uh, Keith Baldry have spoken about the low number of individuals who have actually paid back COVID-19 fines, somewhere around right. less than 10%. I mean, that's problematic. And so if you're not just going to have to deal with the fines, then attach it to something else. Attach it, at least here in BC, to you renewing your driver's license or you having to renew your auto insurance. You can't do those things until you pay off these fines first. Then you might actually have some way of enforcing it. 
All right, welcome back to the show as we continue talking about the COVID-19 rule breakers in British Columbia. It's kind of surprising, I think, to hear that more than 100 people arriving into the country at YVR have uh, refused to go to a hotel. Uh, that's amazing to me, risking a $3,000 a day fine. Do you think the fine should be stiffer? Do you think it should be attached to your driver's license? A lot of people getting these fines are simply not paying them. John Jang is uh, with me. Let's go to your phone calls. James in Kelowna. Hi, James. Hi, Mike. Uh, could, could you explain or could your guest explain the reason or uh, how is it so expensive to stay at a motel for three days? There's no wonder why people aren't doing it. I would rather, if I'm going to come back to the country, go quarantine in a tent. Who's going to pay three thousand or whatever it is to stay in a motel for three days? Where, like, what are they staying in? Like the the ritzy places, or I don't that that to me the is cost- the reason. That to me is the reason why people aren't doing it. Okay, twenty five hundred bucks, John. Right for is it for a three day stay? But I think the price, the cost can vary. That's right. Yeah, the average price comes out to 2500 but if you're staying in other places across Canada, certainly there's uh, some locations and facilities that will cost less. But here in Vancouver, I know one of the locations, the government-approved locations, is a Fairmont Hotel. So uh, the caller is right. It's not exactly cheap. Yeah, so maybe, maybe people are doing the... Uh the calculation in their mind saying, okay, I can go and stay at a government-approved hotel for 2500 bucks, or I can just say to hell with it and risk a $3,000 fine, which I might not pay anyway. Right. And right? so if you've already decided you're not going to pay, then it's pretty easy which decision well, you're going to be favoring right now. Yeah. Let's go to Don in Vancouver. Hey, Don. Hey. Uh, so my comment is, like, um, I, I wonder if that hundred num- the number of 100 is, is actually factual. Because uh, I had a death in the family uh, from COVID, and there was a family member that came in from the United States and he didn't talk about quarantining, and uh, and he walked right through. He didn't quarantine, and I'm wondering how many people actually just skip that line or, or say they're going to do it and just walk out. So 100 is probably underestimating it. Mm. John. And you don't... You know, yeah, John, yeah, I mean, the 106 uh, tickets that have been issued is what was told to me. I emailed and got uh, hold of the Public Health Agency of Canada. So this is a federal body providing these numbers. I mean, it's possible that maybe some of these numbers aren't 100% accurate, but I do tend to believe what the Public Health Agency is uh, telling the public right now. Yeah, I mean, that's a, sign- that's a pretty significant. Now, is that 106 across the whole country? That's just in BC, Mike. That's just in BC. Yeah, that's a, that's an extraordinary number. So it could be even higher across the rest of the country. Let's go to Mark and Burnaby. Hey, Mark. Hey, uh, as far as uh, the driver's license thing, it doesn't make a lot of sense to as I don't know how you could actually do that. But the uh, idea comes to mind for me is, is that, you know, you have a medical card, and this is a medical issue. So they should be issues as far as being able to get medical appointments or, or uh, so on and so forth. What do you think of that? Well, the way it would work is when you go to renew your driver's license or your ICBC at the same time, they check whether you have any outstanding COVID fines. And if you do, you got to pay up or you don't get your renewed driver's license or your ICBC. I mean, that's the, that's the way it would work. That would work in theory. And they do that with some other traffic tickets. Let's squeeze in one more call. John and Delta. Hey, John. Hey, guys, thank you for the opportunity. Sure. I just want to say I cannot believe we're even dealing with, like, dollars and cents and, and people just walking through. This would be the same thing as if I was bringing a plant from across the United States or meat products. I would be stopped at the – I cannot believe the CBSA and federal government aren't protecting the people. And we're just 
letting people just walk through. On social media, you can actually see families that are just saying, nope, I don't want to, uh, you know, pay, you know, catch me if you can. Like, this is ridiculous. We need to stop it. Okay. Thank you for the calls. Thank you for everyone who called in. John, thank you for that. You got it. Thank you, Mike.